Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Iram Parween Balol, who is a Pakistani-American. Iram went from being in the halls of Caltech as a physics Olympian, who then later turned into an award-winning filmmaker. Her third feature film, I'll Meet You There, is a highly acclaimed full-length feature dramatic film about a Muslim cop and his teenage ballerina daughter. This is a film that you should watch and you can access via the show notes. I just recently watched it and I think it's fantastic. Specifically in this episode of Stories of Transformation, we hear the story of Iram's incredible multifaceted life and career. Describing herself as having a heightened sense of awareness, a deeply empathetic soul, Iram understands cultural differences through the vicissitude of her overall lived experience. Her depth of understanding of the human experience is wide-ranging and evident in her words and her storytelling. Through her filmmaking, Iram explores ideas that have inspired her and that she hopes that in return her work will inspire others to share their own stories. I found this conversation to be thrilling, insightful, and tender. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. And as always, leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. So without further delay, I bring you Iram Parween Bilal. Iram, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you, Bektash. I'm uh, good. I'm actually really good. It has been so heartwarming. Our film released less than a week ago. And, you know, when you wait so long to make a film and then have to wait even longer to deliver it and are delivering it in a very untraditional way in a pandemic, it's really heartwarming. Um, granted, all the people who probably didn't like the film are not reaching out, which I'm okay with. <laughs> right. Right. So I have this very like tilted, super positive reaction right now and I'm enjoying it. Mm. Well, I'm glad that's the case. And I'd love to dig into your film, I'll Meet You There, which I thought was fantastic. But I think a great way to kind of start a conversation is to learn more about who you are and what kind of informed you. And the question that I'd like to present is, in your own words, how do you kind of define who you are? I'm just a person living in a very heightened, aware, empathic soul that is very feminine and masculine, actually. And um, I would say expects too much from itself. Mm. Um, So I I could be kinder to myself. So I'm just, Mm. I guess I'm somebody who is very aware of the limitations of life and time and energy and I'm very anxious and passionate and excited to contribute to the world, to help to the world, to learn, to grow, to inspire, to be inspired. And on a non-meta level, I'm a physics nerd turned filmmaker, mm-hmm. you know, love for physics, but became an environmental science engineer. And I'm now a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Nigeria and in Pakistan. I'm a third culture kid. I don't mm-hmm. identify with I mean, I would say, yes, Pakistan would be my home, but I, I don't like to settle. I'm a, I'm a constant wanderer um, mm-hmm. in search of home. Yeah, I like that. I really, there's a lot to work with there. And so let's kind of talk about your lived experience as it pertains to coming to the United States from a place of maturity. Like you didn't come here as a toddler. You came here for, for university. So help us understand what it was like to come to the United States 
and throw yourself at Caltech, which is one of the most prestigious engineering schools in the country. Let's just start there. I had just turned 17 and my parents couldn't really afford to drop me to school here. So I had to board the plane alone. And I was the youngest of three girls and I was escaping a home that actually had a lot of, um, my parents were just fighting a lot. So in some ways I was, you know, I was this naive kid who just was like, I'll study and leave you guys and leave this, this atmosphere. I still remember on the plane, there was this young family, you know, I was just watching them with their kids. And I think it just dawned on me what I had done. <laughs> because we didn't come from a family and a place where, you know, my mom could come and visit me at Thanksgiving or Christmas. And it was, I'd severed the cord. And then I came to Caltech and it's just like, you know, one of my peers, Cooper Rave, he made this film, Shit House, which really captures freshman year in college and the loneliness. Mm. Big shout out to him. And it was really, it was interesting because that was a film about a kid in the U.S. who had just driven to college a few states away. But it really, I think from Pakistan, it was very difficult. I, um, I'm somebody who has a knack for accents. So I actually sounded American, mm. but I was very Pakistani. So it was a very awkward reception, I think, from people. There was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of just... Mm -hmm. There weren't very many people that looked like me. So it was coming from a homogenous country <laughs> in some ways that Pakistan is. Everybody's brown, everybody's Muslim for the most part. And then you come to a country where nobody even knows who Pakistan is or what Pakistan is. And it's sad to say that 9-11 made people more aware of Pakistan or that finding Osama in Abdabad made, but it was true. Literally, I had somebody said, is Pakistan a city in Iowa? which was so interesting to me because A, it meant that I sounded so American. And then because I was foreign, but I sounded American, they just thought I was really weird because I would wear shalwar kameez. And, you know, I was this green that I actually ran on a treadmill barefoot. Mm, <laughs> you're joking. I'm not joking. Even though I grew up in a very, I mean, I would say middle class upper, it's not that I was coming from a village, but I'd never been on a treadmill or, or in the gym. So you say I came from maturity, but I was really a child in some ways, right? And I was somebody who had skipped a lot of grades because uh, mm -hmm. academically I was a high achiever. So I, there was a lot of growing up to do, actually. My mom sometimes says, you know, I wish that we sent you when you were 19 or something mm -hmm. or, you know, a little. Right. So it was hard. It was very hard. And I really wanted to leave um, and transfer out of Caltech because Caltech is a very tough school. Right. So, you know, you go into your math 1A class knowing chain rule of differentiation, and then you come out realizing you don't know chain rule because the professors just filled like eight chalkboards with like all these proofs. And you're like, what? Right, so, right, right, right. So from some, and everybody in that, in that school is for the most part, they're all valedictorians who come to a place like Caltech. It was number one mm -hmm. for US world news globally at that time. So I just thought, you know, college is what I grew up seeing and like, who's the boss, Mr. Belvedere, all these like, you know, high school and lockers. And, and you come to Caltech and it's just like super pure science, very few people, it's very serious school. And it was very white. <laughs> Back in the, there were like no South Asians, frankly. And now when I go back to Caltech uh, as an alum, and I'm very, today we have a private screening for Caltech for the, the film with my film professor from there, which is beautiful. It's coming around. Mm. Now when I go back to campus, I just see immigration and transformation, right? Because I say in the last 15 years, there's a lot of South Asian Americans who are visible on campus. When I went there, there was hardly anybody. There was like four of us. 
And then there were these Indian, South Indian grad students who came from IIT, Indian Institute of mm-hmm. Technology in India. Mm-hmm. A very mm-hmm. different lived experience than, you know, somebody growing in Pakistan. So long-winded way to say it was a huge culture shock, minus the fact that Islamabad and Pasadena both have a range of mountains when you look out the window. There was nothing else that was similar. So I'm glad you brought up this idea of, of, of culture shock. And so I'm kind of curious to know, like, as you think about what America represented and still represents now in your mind, looking back, what was the thing that stood out most to you as a matter of culture shock where you thought to yourself, why on God's green earth do Americans do it this way? In my culture, when you ask somebody, how are you, you really care to hear the answer. So what's up was really you know, because I'd be like, hey, what's up? What's up? And when somebody said, what's up to me? I'd be like, well, this, this, and they're just like, uh, I don't really care to hear. That's just a matter of speech, you know? <laughs> so I think that um, lack of community, lack of this sense of care. So, oh, another thing, which I thought was very interesting was when you had a cold, the immediate reaction was, oh, stay away from me. Whereas in my culture, when you have a cold, they're like, can I get you chicken soup? Are you okay? What's, you know, so, and, and I don't mean to throw like, you know, the concept of being American under the bus, because there's a lot of things I loved, which was people were not nosy. You know, you could do what you wanted. People were actually supportive of you, uh, you know, representing your voice. So th- not judgmental. So I would say that I, there's so much love and community mm-hmm. from the communities we come from. Right. It's the difference between collectivist cultures and individualistic cultures, and and, and it's the exactly. hardest different. It's the hardest thing for for people who are raised in yeah. collectivist cultures to come here because they feel a deep sense of isolation when they're not seen. That's exactly right. right? It's the it's the idea of being seen, and and when you come here to the United States, these things that you're kind of describing, Iram, about what's up, how are you? Oh, stay away from me. You not feeling like people actually care about your well-being leads people to feel deeply isolated. And so I'm speaking from a place of coming from one of those cultures. I'm coming from Afghan culture where it's very much the same. And my parents still hate not being seen. It's their biggest pet peeve. They don't get it. And, And it's nothing that, you know, something that's innately, you know, insulting about American culture is just the way in which this culture operates. Right. right. And and you absolutely hit that nail on the head is because you said individualistic. So I came to America because I wanted to be that individual individualistic. So I have accepted that that is part and parcel of it. But if you want the independence, you want the opportunity, then also understand what you're giving up. Right. So it's opportunity cost. And it's funny also you talk about being seen because one of my recent favorites. In fact, I've been signing out all my introductions for the film with Saubona, which is the Zulu phrase, I see you. And in some ways, I think it's so much more elevated than Salam because it's about being seen. We all want to be seen. That's it. Just to add more nuance to that is, is, is to be seen for who we actually are, right? So, so the idea exactly. of being seen for who we authentically are and then accepted and loved as a result of it. And I think that's the journey of the human condition is always seeking, I think, those two things. Exactly. And I think that because, um, so America is individualistic, but in a lot of ways, America is also very cut off from the rest of the world. Mm. And 
the pressure to assimilate as opposed to integrate by definition means shed your shell, shed who you are and become one of us. And that is not what immigration needs to be. Mm -hmm. You know, it needs to be a transformation. It needs to be here. I'm going to add these things mm -hmm. to my, my bowl of soup. I'm not going to chuck out what I've been developing since I was born and just put in a whole new fresh, you know, uh, uh, ladle in your soup. Mm -hmm. I'm going to just add some ingredients and I'm going to add a little bit and I'm going to make something new because evolving um, is a continuous thing. You know, it doesn't have to be a reset button. And I think that expectation mm -hmm. for people who are coming from different cultures, it's, it's harsh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really curious, could you give us some sense in terms of what year that was that you came to the United States? What year was it? 2000. Okay, 2000. It was a year before 9-11. Wow. So you were a sophomore when 9-11 happened? Yes. I was actually in Pakistan mm -hmm. and I was about to fly back. I'd gone for the, uh, the summer mm -hmm. and I was about to fly back to the U.S. I was supposed to fly back on the 16th. Mm -hmm. And I was with a high school friend in a car when we heard it on the car radio that this had happened. And immediately all the airports in Islamabad were sealed. And so I was not even sure I was going to be able to get in for sophomore year. But I did. I ended up coming. And yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting about that time frame is that, you know, globalization was not yet in full effect, meaning it was on the front wave of globalization where you know, the world was still very much cut off from the rest of the world. I think 9-11 was the fundamental event that taught us that things that happen in a far-off country can quite literally affect us here at home. And that's when soon after, if, if I mean, soon after what happened was, you know, the advent of technological innovation that literally is permeating every aspect of our life now, right? So telephones, laptops. And so I can speak to you wherever you are, whether it's Islamabad, New York, Los Angeles, or Singapore, and it's not a problem, right? So it's this idea that a country, a society, and or a culture can no longer be isolated. Those days are completely over. So this time of, I think, you going to Caltech, come to the United States in 2000, and my family come to the United States in 1986, those days of assimilation were very much the norm. It, I think it is actually impossible now to completely assimilate it. We have to take this approach of integration, which you eloquently described. I'm actually curious about um, you because you probably had a very interesting time during 9-11 being sort of a male and coming an Afghan male. So uh, I don't even, because I, at that point I was somehow shielded because I was on the West coast but I did have male friends who, I mean, the FBI was calling their dorm rooms. So that type of stuff happened. And, you know, that's, you know, when we, when we talk about the film, when initially when I was making the film, people would say things like, oh, this doesn't happen. Like the FBI wouldn't just, do, you know, I would be like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, actually, an Iranian American uh, classmate of mine at Caltech, her father was picked up from the masjid after Fajr prayers, like morning prayers. And he was in jail for two years. And at the end, they just found out that he'd, or the charges were incorrect tax filing. Astonishing. It's, yeah. That's actually a very common charge, by the way, because everybody's taxes are so complicated that uh, somehow, somewhere, mm -hmm. somebody can make a mistake. And that is actually a very common charge that is put when 
Mm-hmm. They can't come up with anything. Yeah, so if you want to kind of go into it really quick and we can fold this into how this plays into your film, you know, being a male of the age, you know, and the profile and the background of being from Afghanistan in the wake of 9-11 was a, for the lack of a better term, a deeply emotional time for everybody. You know, what was interesting about my about my life trajectory is that I, I kind of describe it into this kind of understanding is that there was a pre-9-11 Bakhtosh and there was a post-9-11 Bakhtosh. And everything about my existence wanted me to be American pre-9-11. Afghanistan was the country in which we were running away from because it literally was the place in which we could have died. And, you know, as a young person coming to the United States, I came here when I was five, everything about my existence wanted me to assimilate because... It's what America was about. I came to the United States during the American Project where all around the country, school teachers, community leaders were telling everybody, you need to be American. You need to not speak your language in order to be American. And they would say things like, your kids can't speak more than one language properly. It's actually impossible. And all these sort of nonsensical ways of understanding who who human beings are and how we kind of learn. And, you know, I didn't land in, my, in the Afghan diaspora or around any Muslim community. In fact, my family was sponsored by uh, a Christian church in the middle of central Pennsylvania. And so we, in, very, in a very interesting way, came to a very homogeneous college town where we were the outsiders. Like, there was no doubt about it. And so my entire existence, Iran, was that I wanted to be as American as my close friends who were all named Adam, Kyle, John, Dave, and Craig. I didn't want to have anything to do with the countries in which, you know, formed me. Born in Afghanistan, spent some time in Pakistan, came to the United States. And 9-11 changed that because I no longer was able to run. People would literally confront us. Who are you? Where are you from? What's it like being Afghan? And I had to have the answer. So instead of running away from it, I then embraced it, and that's what my journey's been about since then. It's so interesting you say that. Um, I'm sure you love and or you connect with the reluctant fundamentalist quite a bit. That's what I said in the film, how within the Muslim community, I think in my, after 9-11, what people don't understand is there was a lot of struggle within the Muslim community because before 9-11, it's like, okay, you grew up, you're this, you're a woman, you're this, and you're Muslim. It's just one label of your identity. After 9-11, that was it. You know, it's like you enter a room and it's like, okay, well, what type of Muslim? It's like suddenly people who are just ignoring are like, yeah, I'll figure out religion when I get to it. They're like, okay, well, I got to understand what camp I'm in. Am I Sufi? Am I Wahhabi? Am I this? Am I that? What am I? You know? And so within the community, I feel in some ways 9-11 was the beginning of Protestant Islam as well as born-again Islam. Because I saw people rip off their hijabs and I saw people put on hijabs. It was a decisive moment. So some people were basically like, screw you, I'm going to wear my religion on my sleeve. I'm putting on a hijab, right? And some people were like, well, if it's going to cost my life, I'm going to take this off, you know? Or like, okay, well, I need to really understand what, wearing a hijab means, for example, right? So um, so it was a moment of enlightenment where I feel that a lot of Muslims who were just kind of, you know, just going with the flow <laughs> of being Muslim were like, okay, well, hold on. Because it's like, when I'm saying Allah Akbar, 
And when there's this video that is saying the same, like the guy's using the words I'm using for peace, but then he does that and he's beheading somebody. Wait a minute. You know, so the process of reclaiming Islam and reclaiming Muslim and reclaiming our spaces and reclaiming our identity began. And in some ways, that is when I started writing this, you know, with that Caltech friend's father, with my sister who started wearing hijab. And and then years later, the one who started, who taught me how to dance now does not listen to music or dance. So it'd be really great to kind of talk about your film. I'll meet you there. So help us understand what's the story arc, what's the story about, and then help us understand what's it like to re- release this film in this current moment. So I'll meet you there. And the Urdu title is Bismil um, from the dance of the Dervishes, the Sufi Dervishes. It's a story about um, middle-aged identifying as Muslim, but not practicing necessarily cop in Chicago, who's a single father to a teenage ballerina. And it's about what happens five minutes into the film when the estranged grandfather of the girl, the father of the cop shows up unannounced at his doorstep. And this cop has been asked by his boss to help in an FBI investigation that is somehow leading to the community mosque. And he doesn't really go to mosque. He's agnostic. And, um, but his dad, of course, wants to go. And so taking his dad into this mosque and just this whole like mess starts unraveling and the father's entry into the home and the daughter who is a ballerina having to hide the fact that she dances it's a pressure cooker that erupts in ways that in the immediate time frame are painful, but in the long run are better for the family. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked about the film, there's so many different elements that are amazing, whether it's the cinematography, the character development, and kind of the, the moments in which real pivotal parts of the story are revealed. I like the timing of all of it, which is really great. Big shout out to my cinematographer, Anthony Kuhns, and to our editors, Carrie and Spence. I mean, you make a film with a team. Mm-hmm. and It's true. Uh, it has been this film in its process of raising money. I didn't answer the question of the release. It's We lost the investment a couple of times. It has been like pulling mm-hmm. teeth. We ended up having to make the film for half the budget we wanted to. We shot it in 19 mm-hmm. days. There's a mixture of crowdfunds and private investments and in-kind funds and the Women in Film Finishing Fund. Uh, you know, you piece together these things because Hollywood as a system is probably not very interested in telling these types of nuanced stories on a bigger level. And they are certainly not interested in people like me telling those stories mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, and we can get into representation in terms of the narrative that exists and or doesn't exist in terms of the overall film industry. What I'd be really kind of curious to know is, what is the fundamental reason why you decided to make this film? So all of these things were happening. The script was, you know, kind of in process for a really long time. And then Trump came to power. And I was having a lot of trouble financing this film. And I remember that um, when the Muslim ban happened and I was at LAX, the exact moment when I decided to make this film, I was walking into the Tom Bradley International Terminal, the crowd erupting, let them in, Muslim, we, are Muslim, we are all Muslim, let them in. And, you know, up until that point, I always was scared that if there was a moment in America where people had to stand up for Muslims, they wouldn't. And Trump was, that was a silver lining, I think, for Muslims, actually. Trump coming to power was a silver lining. Because seeing all these people who did not look like me, but just standing up for us, and I was walking to this term and I was bawling. I didn't even realize that I was bawling. 
And this woman fought through the crowd and came and Natasha, she hugged me and she said, you will be fine. And she turned around and disappeared. And I just was like, what is happening? My mom was about to come into the country. Her kidneys had failed. She was going to be on dialysis. And, and I knew, I heard people on green cards were not being let in. So I, this was immediately, Trump being in power was immediately going to affect my life. And that was the day I was like, I need to make this film now. And I set up the crowdfunding. Like four weeks from there, we raised $100,000 to kickstart the investment. And those people who were not putting in money finally all started jumping in. And it's so ironic that with South by Southwest canceling last year and us being pushed, the release actually has weird sweet timing because we were releasing two weeks after Biden reversed the Muslim ban. So it's a full circle. <laughs> That's amazing. And, and there's, there's one line that really stuck out to me, and I think it's really great. We can't move forward until we face our past. I found that to be a major pivotal point in terms of where the film was going. And so I'm kind of curious to know, when I say that, what surfaces for you? What was the rationale behind that line? It's so interesting you say that because now that you're saying it, I'm like, oh my God, that's such a great log line for this. <laughs> Why didn't I use that? Said by the incredible, ravishing Sheetal Shet on She's screen. fantastic. She's so incredible. Ugh. The actors in this film, I just have to give a shout out. I mean, they're everything. Farhan Tahir, Nikita Tavani, Mohammed Kavi Khan, Sheetal Shet. Nitin Madan, I mean, oh gosh, I could go on and on. Great cast, Sunday, Bowling, and Meg Mormon, our casting directors, did an incredible job. That line, I mean, on the surface, and when you watch the film, is very literal for the relationship, obviously, between Majid and Shonali. But it is also about Majid's late wife and the impact on Dua's dance. His daughter, by the way. His daughter. There's, it's also about his relationship with his father, it's just about baggage, right? It's about baggage that if you really want to be present and if you really want to fully sort of let go, you sometimes have to turn around and stare things that make you uncomfortable in the eye, accept them and move on. And that's something that a lot of us, we, we are scared. Like, you know, we are, we're scared to face things and we're almost like we have blinders on because we're like, we just have to deal with this. Sometimes if you remove the blinders, and actually accept the peripheral, it actually in some weird way lets you let go so that your focus is even more heightened in the front. You don't need the blinders anymore. What is it about the past that makes it so difficult to look at it and face it? I think it's our ego. Because I think when we make mistakes, we don't want to accept <laughs> that we've made mistakes. When it comes to acknowledging others, being right or apologizing. We don't want to do that. What is it about that? It's really about our ego and our sense, our false sense of being defined by this idea that somehow we are always right. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that breaks my heart, Akhtash, is that mm -hmm. people, for example, if we're talking about past. How many times have you seen people when someone passes away say all these amazing things and, and say, I wish I told them how much I respected. I, and I'm just like, well, why didn't you? <laughs> like, well, We all know we're here for a limited time. Like that's the ultimate reality. What is the problem? Like what, why can we not tell people that they look great or that they are amazing or that they inspired us? Sometimes some friends will like reach out and be like, I never told you this, but blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I'm so glad you did because today I can... 
I can think about that and it inspires me and then I can inspire myself with that knowledge, right? So mm-hmm. I just, I think it's our ego. Mm-hmm. I think it just is our ego and we are all working on our egos, right? It's a work in progress. I have a terrible ego that I'm trying to, like, trying to reel in, but it's just, it's that, mm-hmm. you know, we're too scared to face our failures. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. The thing that surfaces for me, as you say, that is that, you know, I have a motto that I kind of share with people is that, you know, freedom exists on the other side of vulnerability. And it's this idea of looking back and or telling the people in your life how you see them. And in doing so, you have to show them who you actually are and how you actually feel about them. And that's often very difficult. And you use the words vulnerability, right? And this is also, I'm going to get meta here again, but I think it's a very masculine and feminine energy. I think that we teach this sort of masculine sense of like just being really strong and not apologizing and not being vulnerable and all of that. And that persists because it has frankly been a man's world. It permeates into the environment of what success is and what, so people absorb that, you know, like being vulnerable is being real is being truthful. And when you're truthful, you make long lasting connections that then help everybody. So I'd like to kind of take this moment and talk about something that I think is really curious that I found to be really beautiful, but I'd like to get your perspective on it is the naming of this film. I'll meet you there. And, and at the end of the film, you know, you share a beautiful quote that I think is probably one of the most eloquent and beautiful verses of Rumi's poems. And it's out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and right doing. There's a field. I'll meet you there. Can you help us understand how you make sense of that and why you decided to give this film that name from that from that verse? That is a verse that has always been uh, a favorite of mine. And it's so weird because it, the naming, this film was called Forbidden Steps. I'm so glad we changed that title. I always knew it was the wrong title, but I felt that edit would inform us. The quote is, you know, it's just, it's, we need to not judge. We are constantly evolving. We're not all knowing. So let's not keep telling people what they're doing right and wrong, you know, just can we have a moment and breathe? And so very literally, this is something I could say to my sister about dance and Islam. And very metaphorically, it is something I'd like to say to most people who who are very bent upon judging, you know, and myself included, I'm sure I judge. So it's an idea of just encouraging ourselves to constantly be kind and patient with people whose viewpoints are different from ours. That's great. That's great. And so, you know, what do you hope that your film does in terms of its impact on those that watch it? I hope that on an individual level, we learn that we can be who we are and and trust that um, our families, if we really come clean and give our families a chance, they will come and, you know, embrace us in time so that we can kind of get over the secrets and the pain. So it's healing. On a societal level, I'd love for people to just understand that a Muslim family is just a family. It's like there's, they, we have grandfathers and fathers and daughters and, you know, like, so my hope is the next time somebody who's not Pakistani or Muslim or South Asian or Middle Eastern, when they look at a Muslim family, they maybe have, are more easy in terms of approaching them, you know? And then I just, if people love the film, I just want them to spread the word because it's been a systemic snub in some ways to make this film. And then 
finally we got the South by competition thing and then the pandemic took that away from us. So it's back to the sort of independent curbs of trying to get out. But I have to give a shout out to Level Forward who really stepped up and did an impact distribution for this film so that we weren't lost in the tsunami of this pandemic. Of course. And there's one last thing I'd like to kind of talk to you here as we wrap up here. Based on your lived experience, what is your message for the world? Embrace discomfort because that will help you grow and that'll help you understand things that make you uncomfortable. And in that process, you will become more comfortable. Yeah, I love that. Iram, thank you for the work that you do and thank you for being the light in the darkness. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for amplifying our light. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esaur. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation Group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support, and see you next time.